Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Good morning, Sarah. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? Not too shabby. Yourself? Yeah, we have a blast from my personal past for this episode. Uh, our personal past there. I'm going to share credit for knowing this guy. Uh, but I met him as a wee young 4-H'er. Uh, I was in 4-H for many years and he was the parent of another 4-H'er. So I claim longest. You always have to turn it around and beat me somehow, don't you? <laughs> this is an interview with uh, a man named Sam Hermansdorfer. He was a Vietnam veteran and active in the Vietnam Vets of America, chapter 470. How did you know him, Rebecca? Well, through that chapter, actually. He was one of the first people I met when I took the job, you know, almost eight years ago now. And Sam was always up for telling stories and had program ideas coming out of his ears that he wanted to share. And one day I came in and here... He had a mobile made from seashells for me. And so that's still hanging up in my office from the ceiling. Oh, yeah. He unfortunately passed away in 2018. But in 2003, he sat down with a volunteer named Dave Niles and gave an oral history about his time uh, serving in Vietnam. Yep, and this is only a portion of that oral history. Uh, the full recording will be found in the vault for our members. And we just want to let you know that since it was done in 2003, the recording is a little less of a quality than we would want nowadays. So it's a, a little bit scratchier and there's some background noise. As it was taped on a cassette player. A what now? <laughs> cassette player. It has uh, tapes that go into it. Ooh, it's historic in and of itself. You all, as a listener, you'll hear Sam's slow and methodical speech pattern also, which was kind of a, a treasure of his. One other piece of Sam's that we use all of the time, at, at one point he donated a dolly to the museum just because we needed a sturdy one. So... I appreciate the pieces of him that are still around and the pieces that we can hear from this episode. And just for clarification, when you say Dolly, you do mean a furniture mover type thing rather than the actual toy, correct? Yes. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Yes. <laughs> shall we take a listen? We shall. This is Dave Miles. It's October 10th. 2003, and I'm here in the home of Sam Hermannstorfer, and Sam has uh, consented to talk about uh, some of his experiences in the Vietnam era and, uh, and some of his life experiences. So Sam, maybe we'll just start with where you were born and raised. I was born in Minneapolis, raised in Minneapolis. South Minneapolis, and that's pretty much where I started school and was raised and went into the military from there. And uh, when did you graduate from high school? I graduated from high school in 1965. 
after I graduated, I tried to enlist, and they told me I was not qualified for the military. They gave me a 4F status, which was uh, meant that I was not uh, not qualified to even be in the reserve, or even during the uh, absolute necessity of of, uh, of uh, war or something that I would I'd never be called up. So I had to go have uh, couple different operations. I had to have a hernia operation and I had to have lung surgery repaired uh, so that uh, I could get into the military. Uh, did the two surgeries result in you being able to join them? Yes, I, I finally, uh, after three years of, of, a, of uh, surgeries and recovery and so forth, I finally was able to to get the, the 1A classification, which meant that I was eligible for service, and then I enlisted in the Army. And uh, what year was that? 1968, March of 1968. Why did you uh, decide that you wanted to enlist? I guess it was pretty much, uh, I figured it, it was uh, my parents had done it, and I, I, I felt that it was my my duty to uh, pretty much do the same. In March of 1968, you were able to join the Army, and uh, where'd you go for basic? I went to Fort Dix, New Jersey, and took basic and uh, advanced training at uh, Fort Dix. And then uh, after my advanced training, uh, four of us were selected for uh, special duty we were supposed to go to some, some other country for civilian component duty, they called it. And uh, anyway, we had to go get extra shots, and, and we had to get our birth certificates, and we had to have passports, and uh, a bunch of other things to go through to, to get these uh, positions. And after we went through all this, get all the shots and the passports and birth certificates, the the whole thing was canceled. So, uh, typical military. Yeah. Uh, so then I ended up uh, becoming permanent party at Fort Dix. So and you were stationed there. So I was stationed right at Fort Dix until uh, I came down on what they called, I came down on the levee, or my, my name was called up for, for duty for Vietnam, which was in uh, 1969. What were your duties while you were at Fort Dix? I uh, was a mechanic on uh, wheeled vehicles. Did you ship directly to Vietnam? No. <clears throat> I, I came home for 30 days leave uh, prior to going overseas, landing in Hawaii for refueling. And then uh, when we got, when we left Hawaii, we uh, had to land in Guam because the uh, Arab Strip was being shelled in Vietnam, and they couldn't land, and so we uh, had to spend a little bit of time in Guam, where uh, we were told not to go to the liquor store, but uh, there's a plain load of guys going over there. It was kind of a mute point to tell us not to go to the liquor store. Everybody kind of hit the liquor store right away. We all were drunk when we got, got to Vietnam. And 
<coughs> then they made us uh, all file out uh, when, when we got in off the buses, uh, which were air-conditioned buses, uh, off of the airplane on air-conditioned buses, and then uh, transported to the to the uh, area where they were going to do the uh, talking, telling us where we were going and so forth. So what happened then? So then uh, I was uh, assigned to uh, the first division. Uh, First in, first in the 26th Infantry, and uh, I was assigned to uh, Company B in the motor pool there. And then I was assigned to uh, Battalion Maintenance, which was uh, the 701st Maintenance Battalion. You were performing maintenance on what kinds of vehicles? All kinds of wheel vehicles, anything with tires under it. Trailers, jeeps. When when we had to do maintenance on the uh, on the uh, tanks, it, it was up to the tank crew to take the motors out of the out of the tank. They'd have to do all the the work of disconnecting everything, and we'd just sit on top of the tow truck and uh, lift the the motor out of the out of the uh, tank. And then we'd take it back to the motor pool area and had a big tent area, that would, uh, a Quonset type tent that we, we would uh, put the motor down inside there and, and work on it from inside there. Were you able to, uh, to have parts and parts supply good? Parts supply was pretty good. We used to uh, <clears throat> order parts from the States. Uh, we had what they called a red ball. Uh, order that uh, would get the parts to you within a week of, uh, of the order. And needless to say, being that it was in the military, why the, the uh, parts orders and, the, and the, the parts that you would order would kind of be transferred from different places to uh, accommodate your needs. Uh, there was many a times when the, the parts were traded for items that uh, You'd want like uh, we we trade uh, parts that we had ordered especially uh, in uh, we trade to the engineering units for for a pallet of uh, metal roofing so that we could make our our uh, what they call the hooch our living quarters. So that was pretty much common practice to do a little bargaining and trading of. As, as needed for the accommodate to your living quarters or whatever there. So we, it, it, it started out, we lived in tents, great big tents with uh, no mosquito netting or anything around the tent. The only mosquito netting you had was on your bed. It was a, it was a pretty common practice for everybody to try and, and, and build a the living quarters or a hooch, as it was called. Usually two guys would get together and build something. But you'd have to do a little trading to get the materials necessary to do all this. So you did that? The guy that I, I uh, shared the hooch with was from Iowa. And uh, both of us were sound sleepers. And 
we were always worried that we weren't going to hear the in, incoming artillery uh, when, it, when, when we were sleeping. For some reason or another, one of us was always able to hear that whistle from that incoming artillery and wake the other guy up and so forth, just about the time the shells started coming in. You get shell them a lot? In Lake Hay, we did. Uh, Lake Hay was, they called it Rocket City. And uh, it lived up to its name. It was pretty common practice to, at all, any kind of time of the day or night, to have to run to the bunker or something for protection. About how long were you in life? Uh, about six months. I had a, a weird experience uh, one night on guard duty. It was, uh, it was just, it was still daylight. And we were, it was pretty much a common practice to, to sit on the back of the bunkers until it got dark. And, uh, there was three of us assigned to one bunker. And uh, we were sitting on the back of the bunker there, and I was sitting in the middle between the two other guys. And uh, the officer of the guard had just driven by to check to make, everything, to make sure everything was was okay and so on. And uh, he was up probably, oh, I don't know, maybe a hundred yards or so away to the next bunker. And all of a sudden I started screaming <coughs> very loud. I had gotten bitten by a scorpion right in the spine. I was, I was right in between the other two guys and I was the lucky recipient of Jeez. the scorpion bite. Officer of the guard came driving back to see what was going on and find out why I, why all the noise and so forth. Found out I got bitten by the scorpion. It took me back to the aid station. And, uh, medics gave me some kind of pills of some sort for the scorpion bite to help with the, the nerve thing or something. And uh, I spent the better part of the evening in the aid station. Then the, uh, the officer of the guard came back to uh, check on me. He told me I could either go back to, on guard duty for the rest of the night or or uh, go back to my quarters and then full guard duty the next time. So I figured I'll go back on guard duty. I've already got most of the night yeah. completed. So that's what I did. I went back on guard duty for the rest of the night. But word got around the whole bunker line that somebody had gotten hit. And uh, everybody was afraid to even go around the bunkers then. How long did the effects of the scorpion last? Well, it lasted uh, that night. I had the, the uh, kind of uh, nerve damage type thing ever since. Hmm. Maybe you could uh, describe a little further the living conditions. You mentioned building the roof. Yeah. When we first got over, First got to the unit. Uh, we lived in a in a great big tent that, that had uh, uh, pallets for a floor. We were pretty lucky. We had pallets. There was a lot of places that you know, a lot of guys that didn't even have a tent to, to sleep in. Uh, but uh, our tent had a uh, pallet that, that uh, we could put our cots on. And then we had uh, uh, 
metal rods that, that, were, that had a, a T-shaped metal rod uh, on each end of the pole uh, of the bed. And then our, our mosquito netting was just hung over the top of that metal rod draped over the top of your bed. And uh, that was your, your living quarters then. Uh, until such time as uh, you could build a, a, a hooch. And that tent was big enough to carry, I don't remember exactly, but I would guess somewhere around 10 guys were inside of each tent. So it was, it was a big tent. Did you have a mess hall? Yeah, we had a mess hall, and it was just that too, mess. <laughs> the food was not exactly uh, the most accommodating. And of course, being a, a GI, you learn to uh, acquire the necessary items to to uh, to keep yourself uh, fed, other than having to eat uh, the food from the mess hall or or eat the the, the rations. And our, our rations were, were uh, C rations or even K rations. We were getting, uh, which was from World War Two. And uh, when I say that we would acquire the food as necessary, they had a big uh, supply area not far from, from where we were located. And uh, they had uh, big tents and big uh, refrigerator uh, areas that they would keep the food in. And they would have one one guy walking guard duty around this whole big area, and it was a very big area. And they had one strand of wire around that whole area. Well, it was just like a bunch of ants going in there. The, the, uh, the guy that was walking guard duty would go around the back, and he'd just kind of take his time, and it was just a mad rush for everybody to, to charge in there and grab uh, rations or, or go into the refrigerated area and grab steaks and so forth and then we each we acquire these 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 uh, items uh in a military fashion we would bring them back to our quarters and, and cook the food up ourselves and then we had something that we could eat so uh, i say that uh, it was acquired in a military fashion that meant that uh, a normal GI would know he'd go steal the food that he needed. After you'd been there for a while, what did you think about being in Vietnam? Uh, I was scared. I was uh, rather ticked off with the way things were going on because we had areas that, that they could ambush us from and we weren't allowed to fire back at them. We'd be on a convoy. Uh, and we'd be going by a cemetery or something, and, and uh, we'd start receiving small arms fire from uh, from within the cemetery area. And, uh, we weren't allowed to fire back into there. We just had to duck down or whatever and try and get out of the way as fast as possible. Uh, did you know ahead of time when your tour would be up? Well, you knew you you had a what they call the short timers calendar. Uh, and, and you had the days marked off, uh, so you know pretty much when you were supposed to be leaving within a matter of a, 
that they, some guys even knew down to the hours. But I, my short time with calendar was strictly by the day. So I knew what day that I was supposed to leave. From where and how did you leave? I left Vietnam by by plane, but we left by what they call the Freedom Bird. We got on the Freedom Bird, and uh, which was a civilian airplane, and uh, flew back to the States, Fort Lewis, Washington, Thank you. and uh, we were processed there and given our, uh, our new uniform, our dress uniforms again. And we were supposed to uh, pretty much throw away our, our fatigues because they were all uh, discolored and so forth anyway, jungle fatigues. But before we left uh, Vietnam, we had to go into a, a great big uh, screened-in building where uh, our bags, we put our bags on top of a table. They told us that if we had any contraband or any paraphernalia that uh, it was illegal, like weapons of some sort, or drugs, or whatever. Uh, but we had a five-minute uh, amnesty time. We were supposed to dispose of anything up in the front of this building. Uh, they had duffel bags, and you just threw the stuff in the duffel bags that uh, during this amnesty time, and nothing was said then. And after that amnesty time was up, then we had to uh, empty our duffel bags on top of the table and they had uh, officers and so forth uh, that walked around the different tables and, and these were big long tables where everybody would just stand in front of <clears throat> and you had all your clothes and so forth all laid out there and they'd walk by and just stick their hands in, uh, in your clothing and see if they could find anything and at the into this uh, checking, and they would uh, so the pack your stuff up again and get ready to, to leave. And that's when we were allowed to get on the Freedom Bird. You know, as you're telling about that, I guess my immediate thought is that's pretty offensive. <laughs> you know, you guys have been spending a year over there dodging artillery and everything else, and. Uh, they got to come around and check the clothes. Yeah. They didn't want any. They didn't want any weapons or, or or drugs being brought back to the states illegally. Uh, when that plane took off, what were your thoughts? There was just a, a whole lot of whooping and hollering on board the airplane, and, and uh, a whole lot of uh, guys slapping hands, you know, the high-five thing and so forth, and uh, slapping each other on the back, and just a lot of yelling. I remember a lot of yelling and so on, especially once we got off the ground and we were up in the air there, and we knew that we were, we were clear of, uh, of being uh, hit by artillery. I left in February from Vietnam and came back to the States, left Fort Lewis, with uh, my dress greens, which uh, amounted to uh, an overcoat and my, my dress hat and, uh, and, and uh, shoes, and then a, a whole new issue of, uh, of uh, clothing. And uh, I remember coming back 
from Fort Lewis to the Minneapolis airport. And uh, I had just enough cash to uh, take a taxi cab from the airport to, uh, to the end of the freeway on 46th Street, on uh, the freeway exit at 46th Street. And uh, I asked the cab driver if he would take and, and give me a ride the rest of the way, which was probably a half a mile from, from there, maybe a little further. And he refused to give me a ride from the, from the end of the freeway to, to my home. So I uh, walked uh, from, from the freeway uh, carrying my duffel bag uh, in the middle of the winter and it's just a pair of shoes uh, and my winter coat and I, I just came from a hundred and some degree weather and now I'm back in the 20 below weather uh, I walked with my duffel bag from the bottom of the freeway up to my parents home and, uh, and then I uh, went to a neighbor's house and, uh, and got the key to, to enter my parents home uh, uh, that's that's what I did. I just walked from the from the freeway. That's that was the consideration that we received when we got home. How did the service affect you after you got out? Put my head back where it belongs. I guess if you to put it in, instead of being uh, uh, so carefree or uh, careless about about what I what I think <clears throat> of things and. And what I thought about my homeland, per se, uh, I think that the military helped me in that respect, made me grow up. I, think I also ended up with, uh, with uh, medical problems because of the military also. So it's, it's been a, a, a two-edged sword in that respect. But uh, my, my time after service, I think that the military's helped me uh, uh, as far as being able to take orders uh, in my job, even though I didn't like the, the way things were, or, or even though I comment about things uh, being uh, done in a, in a lousy manner or something, I always uh, knew that I had to do the job regardless. I think the military taught me that. Is there anything else you'd like to say? You said a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of too much. I just uh, I'm grateful for the for the chance to uh, to give my side of the, uh, the my time in service and so on. Oh, Sam, I want to thank you for for sharing all your experiences and your thoughts, but most of all, I want to thank you for serving. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, I'm Lydia Potoff, an adult services librarian at Anoka County Library, and this is your Library Minute. First up, we have Vietnam, the Veterans Experience, an exhibition produced by the Anoka County Historical Society 2005. This spiral-bound book highlights the experience of local soldiers from Anoka, Minnesota, who belong to Chapter 470 of the Vietnam Veterans of America personal photographs, personal narratives, a list of Anoka County Vietnam War casualties, and a background on the conflict are included. Next, we have Enduring Vietnam, 
An American Generation and Its War by James Edward Wright. Enduring Vietnam recounts the experiences of the young Americans who fought in Vietnam and of families who grieved those who did not return. The book describes the baby boomers who grew up in the 1950s, why they went into the military, what they thought of the war, and what it was like to serve in Nam and to come home. And through substantial interviews with those who served, Enduring Vietnam depicts the cruelty of this war and its quiet acts of courage. Next, we have Sisterhood of War, Minnesota Women in Vietnam. Historian Kim Haikila here delves into the experiences of 15 nurse veterans from Minnesota, exploring what drove them to enlist, what happened to them in country, and how the war changed their lives. This group of Minnesotans launched the campaign to build the Vietnam Women's Memorial. In the process, a collection of individuals became a tight-knit group of veterans who share the bonds of a sisterhood forged in war. Next, we have The Vietnam War by Ken Burns. This 18-hour documentary by Burns, as shown on PBS, is an immersive narrative that casts light on every aspect of the Vietnam War, including those involved and those affected. This documentary is available on DVD or streaming on Canopy. Happy reading. Happy watching. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. I love oral histories, Sarah. I love them because all of a sudden these people that you had to say goodbye to come right back into your brain the way that the way that you remember their voice. And they turn into people with lives and experiences rather than just a human that you knew in one context. They become so much richer. Or even just a statistic, you know, the Vietnam statistics that were out there, you know, there's so many people that are no more than a number in the history books. And I love that Sam told stories that no one else could tell. Yeah, it's your own personal legacy through that lens. Um, the other thing that we have from Sam, if you want to get to know him a little bit more as a person, is the letters that he sent home from Vietnam in his very own scrawl. Um, they are graphically funny and quite uncensored. So, you know, do read them with a, an eye to be amused. Uh, but we have those um, in the museum. They've been transcribed and we'll put those transcriptions on the vault for our members there. And we'll drop uh, one in the show notes just to kind of wet your whistle and make it worth your time to either join the vault at $5 a month or to pop in and read them in the museum. We'll also have the full uh, interview on the vault as well. Always something fun to see there. <laughs> it, I can't believe with this episode, we are one away from having two full years of this podcast. We've been doing this for two years. Whoop, pop the confetti guns. <laughs> it's so easy to just think it's us talking back and forth here. And it's weird to think that people are out there listening and enjoying this. So as we're coming to the end of our second year, we'd love to hear from you. What are you guys thinking about the episodes? And what would you want to hear in the future? You know, what pieces of your families are out there that are interesting 
that would be enjoyed by the rest of the Anoka County crew? And uh, what components of, of the community intrigue you? You know, what are you curious about? We can go out and talk to anybody. We're actively planning for our third season right now. So now is the time to let us know what you think and get those lines on people and places that should be an episode. You can either call the museum at 763-421-0600, or you could send Rebecca and Sarah an email at conveniently, Rebecca or Sarah, at anokacountyhistory.org. Awesome. Look forward to hearing from everybody, and we'll see you next time. Adios. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras, as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.